God calls us into worship. Verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. In my anguish I cried to the Lord, and He answered by setting me free. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. Let's sing a hymn of praise. Hymn number 560. Our scripture this morning, following up in our series of the Garden of God, comes from Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like that of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. Awake, north wind, And come, south wind, blow on my garden, that is, fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste his choice fruits. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. As we pick up the story of God's garden, we should remember the pronouncement God made at the conclusion of the sixth day. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. I really can't tell you how profound that statement is. How profound that statement really carries for Christians in their view of the world. God's creation is good, not evil. And God's own proclamation conflicts, ironically, with many Christians' view of this world because there are many Christians out there that have a very negative view of God's creation. And how many people do you know who are waiting to get out of this world? As Christians, it's kind of a very sad thing when you look at creation and what God has done that Christians have this negative view of the world that they're trying to escape from. But I know a lot of Christians like that. The first chapters of Genesis make it clear that God originally made Adam and Eve to live in this world. That's what it's all about. In fact, it's God's garden where this special place that God made where he could commune with his friends. This world was originally made to be a place where God and man could live together in joy and peace. That's how the Bible opens up. And Adam didn't sit around waiting for some day when he could leave this world and go to heaven. That's very clear in the text. Adam had much to do in this world, and he was created to live in it, and he was created to live in God's presence in that special garden place with all the many blessings that God had given given him. He had life, and that's what creation was all about. Creation is all about life. So as we saw last week, many have a distorted view of the original creation of man in the garden, and so they end up having a distorted view of their Christianity and how it relates to the world around us. 
And I believe that the key mistake, as I mentioned last week, at least for Christians who come from our background, is this idea that Adam was originally created in his original state under a covenant of works. That somehow Adam had to earn his life by his own obedience. And thus it is supposed that when Adam and Eve fell, God did something different and instituted a covenant of grace. So the logical implication from this way of thinking, which is, has been very popular for hundreds of years now in our tradition and, and reformational, as reformational Christians, is that Christians should not look at the original creation as the pattern for life today because God sort of broke that pattern when Adam fell and sinned and sort of brought sin into the world and God started all over from scratch with this covenant of grace, which would go from Genesis 3 on. And so you would say, well, we're not looking at Adam in the garden anymore. The idea would be we'd be looking at the sacrifice that God made right at the fall after, after the Adam and Eve fell and when they were kicked out of the garden because the sacrifice is the centerpiece of our Christianity, right? That's grace. And that's the way people would look at it. It makes some sense because Jesus Christ is at the center of Christianity and his sacrifice is at the center of, at the center of, our, of our faith. But there are a lot of problems with that view. As Bo pointed out, Paul's argument in Galatians is that covenant promise and grace comes first. God extended grace first to Abraham and made a promise to him. And then the law comes later. And of course, if we think of the, if the Bible as covenant of works first and then the covenant of grace later, we've reversed Paul's order and I maintain we've reversed all of the order of Scripture in all the different demonstrations of God's grace and God's covenants. So that's a major, major problem. Also, we notice Adam was created by sheer grace in Genesis 2. What did Adam do to earn his life? Absolutely nothing. How could Adam do anything to earn his life before he lived? And yet God created him to live by sheer grace, by sheer love. God gave Adam a garden to enjoy. Grace, again. He gave Adam a place where there was an abundance of water, as we read last week, four rivers to water the land. Pure grace. He gave Adam a place where gold and precious stones were available. True grace. And even at that point in time, God has still not told Adam anything to do. Pure grace. Not until after God put man in the safety in the rest of the garden does he give him one command not to eat of that tree, lest the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So Adam had freedom in the garden. He had the freedom to eat all of these different trees that God made, except for the one tree at the middle of the garden, the knowledge of good and evil. And so we see again that the original order from creation was that Adam was made by grace to live by faith in God's word and in order to obey what God has commanded him. And I see the gospel of Jesus Christ right there because the gospel of Jesus Christ is, as we saw with Ephesians 2 and Paul, saved by grace to live through faith unto obedience. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus and there's a very clear pattern between the original creation and what Paul is teaching in Ephesians 2 about the new creation or redemption. So I see, I see the gospel of Jesus Christ from the very beginning. And as we look at this in Genesis chapter 2, the second half of Genesis chapter 2, I think we'll see that there's even more that is prefigured and pre-prophetically sort of prophetically spoken of in Genesis 2 about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's go to our text in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18, picking up where we left off last, last time. The Lord God said, It is not good... For the man to be alone, 
I will make a helper, helper suitable to him. Now, because we've broken this up, there's actually, you miss a play on words here because when you compare this statement to the command that God just gave Adam, you'll see that there's a connection here between this statement and the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because that was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but now God says that it is not good for man to be alone. In other words, what's going on in the text is that God is knowing good and evil. He's knowing what's right and wrong and what is good and evil for the man. And what's more, he wants to extend even more grace to the man by saying, I will make a helper suitable for him. And so the picture that Genesis presents is that God is working to benefit Adam more and more as we go through this chapter. He understands good and evil. They don't. And so they have to rely on his word and he is working to create this perfect setting by which he can enjoy covenant friendship with him. And here we have more grace because he's making someone suitable for Adam. What did Adam do to earn this helper that God had in mind? There's nothing. So now we have verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. And so here is Adam all alone. And I believe that this statement that we have going into this it is not good for man to be alone is a statement that goes far bigger than just the issue of marriage. Because it's not good for man to be alone. We have the idea of man created in a society, created in a culture to live in contact with people and there's a very good reason for that because if man was perfectly fine all by himself, then he would have no need for God, ultimately. And so what we see here with Genesis 2:18 and 19, first of all, with the idea of, of it not being good for man to be alone is really the same thing that we see in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12 says, Two are better than one because they have good return for their work. If one falls down his friend can help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So here's the message. Christians are not strong when they live their lives in isolation from the community of God's people. That's really what's the expanded idea here of what Genesis 2 is teaching about man it not being good for man to be alone. Those who try to, to live alone as islands to themselves find themselves sooner or later facing great difficulty. And God, like I said, made the world that way because ultimately, if man were fine all by himself, there would be no need for a covenant relationship with God. So God made this world in such a way to do all these things and to teach all these things. And it's interesting to see how this works. Now, in verse 19, we see this expansion on this where Adam is taught through the experience of creatures. And it's interesting to point out here that in Genesis 2, we have a reverse order going on from Genesis chapter 1 of God's creation. In Genesis 1, on the sixth day, if you remember, the animals were created at the first part of day six, and then you have man created, male and female, 
after the animals. But on this chapter, we see kind of a reverse going on because you have Adam being the centerpiece and Adam's being talked about first. And then we have this idea that God formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Any ideas why that would be important? Why the, why the author of Genesis would have this sort of reversed order? I have a theory about it. I have a theory that actually if you look at the whole chapter of Genesis 2 with man, Adam, being created first and then the garden and then the animals and then woman, you can almost see them as a bookend, right? So I would say that my theory is that the reason the Hebrews had this idea of reversing the order is because man is both the beginning and the end of God's work. Adam is both the Alpha and the Omega, if you want to understand it that way. He is the centerpiece of God's creation. And so you have this idea that that really highlights the importance of who man is. And I think you see a little bit of shades of Jesus Christ himself, particularly in verse 19 and 20, because we have here all the animals being placed under Adam's feet. Because what does he do to the animals? When God brings the animals there, he names the animals. And he's experiencing the animals and God is doing this a little bit at a time to teach him. So in a, in a, in a word, you could say that Adam was under the, tu- the tutoring of the Holy Spirit here to understand what it means to be alone and what it means to not have a suitable help meet for him. So you have a lot of things going on here. If you think of this as Adam, as Jesus Christ, you'll see shades and things going on where all of the creation we get to in the New Testament after Christ's work all of the creation is placed underneath his feet. He has dominion over everything. Well, that pattern is right here in verse 19 with all the animals. All the animals symbolically are placed under Adam's feet because he names them as a sign of dominion. But God does desire for Adam to understand his incompleteness. And he brings all of these different animals before Adam and he figures out that there's nothing like himself. And I think there's pretty good experiences of this. One of the beautiful things about Genesis 1 through 3 is how much it relates to our common experience. I mean, Grandma, you you have an animal in your house. And why do you have that animal? For friendship, companionship, and everything else. But having that animal is not the same as if you had Joel over to your house, right? It's very different. Joel talks to you. Joel is more on your side, on your level, your suitable help me kind of concept. So here you have this progression of experiences that Adam experienced the garden and the trees, and then he experiences the animals, and then we find out at the end of verse 20, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Notice that Eve is not an afterthought. Genesis 1.27 tells us that God made man male and female, and so God had it in mind to create the woman from the very beginning. She was to be his helper, and that, of course, does not imply inferiority. And what's interesting about this helper A suitable helper. No suitable helper was found. The same word helper is there used in the Psalms of God. In fact, we read that in Psalm 118. There's a few other Psalms that use the same Hebrew word 
of helper about God himself. So God gets busy here. Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place of the flesh. And he wants to bless Adam with more grace. Remember, this is all flowing. Everything in Genesis 1 and 2 is flowing out of God's personality as a loving, gracious being. In fact, if you think of it this way, be very careful how I put this, but for God to express His love and grace, He needed someone to shower grace upon. And so in a sense, the creation itself completes God. Because if there's no one to share love or grace with, and I'm not disagreeing with the idea that there was an inter-Trinitarian relationship before the creation of the world, but it was through the creation of the world and the showering of grace, overflowing grace of creating all this stuff, that God truly demonstrated His personality, who He is as a loving God, as a gracious God. And so He knows exactly what He has in mind for Adam. And so God takes Adam and He causes a deep sleep and He takes part of the man's side. Your translations say rib, but the Hebrew is actually more vague, just saying simply a part of His side. And from His side, literally, God made a woman and brought him to the man. Here we have another example of grace. What did Adam... Did Adam buy the woman from God? Bride price? No, there's nothing like that. No, go out and dig the gold up out of the ground so you can pay me for the woman. No, work for me for seven years and then you can have the woman. Right? This is, this is totally grace. And it's the best grace so far. And that's a recurring theme in the, in the Bible. You see that God gives grace and grace and grace. And as He gives grace, it gets better the further you go. All right? So there's a lot of patterns here going on. And what's neat is that this is the best thing that God could have given Adam. And so Adam writes poetry when he sees what God brought to him in verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. There's a play on words here that relates to to the source of the woman in, in Adam's side. Obviously, the side would be the place of the rib. And so you have the rib bone of man's side makes woman bone of his bone. And the flesh that God opened up makes woman flesh of his flesh. And the key here is the woman comes out of the side of man. As the very old proverb goes, the woman is not taken from his head so that she could rule over him, nor was she taken from his feet that she should be trampled by him. She was taken from his side for she was meant to to co-reign with him over all creation. It's a very different view of women than is common among some in our day and even in Jesus' day, as we'll see, who have a very low view of women where the idea is that God really screwed up the creation by creating woman. I mean, we see this playing out in Genesis 3, but people tend to read way more into that than I think is justified where you have this idea that the woman sort of ruined this beautiful, tranquil state of the garden. But that's not the way it's presented in Genesis 2. She was taken from his side for she was meant to be his helpmeet and to be his co-heir over all creation. Now the text makes a pronouncement. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Not only are they one flesh by creation, they will become one flesh by marriage. There's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting little 
the way the Hebrews looked at this, as the history was, so will be the future. That was the way they looked at this. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. As it was, so it will be. And there we have the institution of marriage. Covenant institution of marriage. Marriage is a part of the created order before the fall. It is God's design for human life. And we can see that through the rest of the Bible because even the most holy man in the Old Testament was called to marry. The high priest was called to marry. The Nazarite, who had his life entirely dedicated to serving God and could not partake of certain parts of creation for various reasons, he was called to marry. As Paul said, marriage is good, not evil. I'm not sure why medieval Christians had such a hard time understanding this because it seems very clear because the, the medieval Christians celebrated celibacy or staying single as opposed to marriage. It may have been partly because of the tradition that got developed in the church and tradition tends to be very powerful after it builds up a head of steam. It also may have been because the, the scriptures were not widely available to the common man where this would be very obvious for them to understand. But for many, many centuries, Christians had a real problem with looking at marriage and all the aspects of marriage as good. And, uh, and this, is, this is one of the things that it's very obvious from the creation that marriage is good. And we see Paul and Jesus and a lot of other people affirming that later in the Bible. Now, a lot has been said about marriage, about what marriage is, about how this particular text sort of gives the boundaries of marriage. But I want to talk a little bit more about what the rest of the Bible says about this passage. And we're going to see how marriage is way bigger than sort of just the practical application of it. So turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. You see those Pharisees, they had a very low view of marriage. They looked for a reason or a justification to use marriage for their own ends. And Jesus pointed back to Genesis 2 and taught, of course, the original biblical high view of marriage. What God has joined together, let no man separate. That text is very significant. Jesus just pointed to the garden and taught his teaching based off the original pattern in the garden. Did Jesus think of them as a, under a covenant of works at that point in time? He's basing his teaching, his gospel, about marriage, about the way God originally created that means the garden order formed the basis of Jesus' teaching on marriage. And so, obviously, that raises another problem for this idea that, the, that Adam was originally created in a covenant of works. 
Because here you have Jesus, the Lord of the New Covenant, pointing back to the garden and using that garden as the basis of his teaching. If Adam lived in a covenant of works, how could Jesus point to the original creation as the basis for his teaching? And it's not merely Jesus who did this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. have another citation of Genesis 2 in Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Remember what Jesus said, the two are one? So Paul is repeating that here by saying that he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So Paul, again, does the same thing Jesus. He reaches back and he points back to Genesis chapter 2 and says, as it was there is the way it is now. And this is part of the gospel teaching of Paul. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually preached from the garden. That's what we see in Genesis 2. And that's why Paul and Jesus could actually build their teaching on top of exactly what we see in Genesis 2. Paul also does something else with marriage here. It's very important. Paul draws a parallel between husbands and wives and Christ and the church. And there are other places in the New Testament where this connection is made. Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom. The church is referred to as the bride, adorned for her husband. In fact, this link that Paul gives makes it even more, makes even more sense out of Genesis 2. Because Paul also calls Jesus what? Adam. The last Adam. So there's a lot of links going on here between Genesis 2 and Paul's theology. And we, can get into, we could get into that and read all those different arguments and parallels that Paul draws out. But we have this pattern going on in Genesis 2 that is part of the gospel. You have Adam created first and then Eve, right? And we see the same thing in the gospel because we have Jesus Christ first and then we have the bride after. In fact, I would submit to you that in light of Jesus' and Paul's connections here, back to Genesis 2, that all of Genesis 2 is prophetic. All of Genesis 2 is speaking about the gospel. Let's go back to Genesis 2 and look at it again. In light of those connections that Paul makes between the bride, the church, and Eve, and the husband, and Adam, and Christ, let's go back and look at Genesis 2 again. Verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. You notice that God does not want to be a bachelor? What do you read about in the Bible? God's always chasing a woman, right? He's always chasing a woman to bless and to love. 
a woman that he can show his boundless love and a woman that he can live with forever, a pure and holy woman. That's why he made this creation in the first place, so he could dwell with man in all this stuff that we have around us. Verse 19 and 20, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. I already mentioned this shade of Christ. Everything was placed under Adam's feet, just like Jesus Christ. All of creation was placed under his feet. He was given all authority in heaven and earth. Verse 21, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. This is talking about Adam, right? What happened to Jesus? He was crucified, dead, and buried. He went into a deep sleep. Metaphorically speaking, using sleep as the metaphor for death. This is the gospel right here prefigured prophetically. Turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it was, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. John saw something very important when he saw that Roman soldier pierce the side of Christ and cause a, a sudden flow of blood and water. And remember that John is the only disciple who actually witnessed the crucifixion. All the other disciples fled, but it was John who stayed. And he was the one who saw this. And here, when he writes this down, he is so excited about what he sees. In essence, he swears up and down that what he saw was really the truth. He saw this as huge. When I preached on the crucifixion a few years ago, I pointed out the connection to the blood and the water in the temple worship because blood and water are two very prominent aspects in the temple worship. But I believe that the blood and the water actually coming from the side of Christ goes all the way back to Genesis 2. It is the blood and the water that flowed from Christ's side which is what God made the church from. She was formed by the blood of Christ and the washing of regeneration in the language of Paul. Blood and water. That's what forms the church. That's how God formed the church from the side of the, the last Adam. And that's now why we are called the body of Christ. That's why we are one with Christ. Through the crucifixion, we are joined to him in perfect marriage bliss, the marriage that all of our own individual marriages point to. Every time you have experience as a married person, there is the gospel being communicated in that. The gospel is, being create, is created into the very fabric of this universe. All the principles of marriage are the principles of the gospel. So once again, if we read our book of Genesis rightly, 
we will see that the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached to Adam in the garden. The gospel is spoken of prophetically before the fall. The gospel of Jesus Christ begins in the garden of God for Adam and Eve speak prophetically of Jesus Christ and his church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us in calling us into your marvelous light and putting life into us that we might rejoice and praise your name in all the things that we do and say. We know that the dead do not praise your name. You have no interest in the dead. You've caused us to live. We pray that you would strengthen us to return the, the sacrifice of praise in each of the activities that we do and each of the things, uh, the people that we meet, all the aspects of the dominion of your kingdom that you have, that you have caused to, to grow and to, to be known and manifest in your world. Lord, we pray for strength and wisdom as we go in the week ahead of us. May we see how the gospel is communicated. May we learn to practice the gospel in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.